Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Scared to Death is explicit in every way. Please take care while listening. Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. I'm Lindsay. <laughs> Lindsay. Uh, happy Halloween again. If you're listening to this on the West Coast of the U.S. or even further west, immediately when it comes out just before uh, midnight on the 31st. Halloween. <laughs> so for everyone else, I hope you already had a happy Halloween. And I hope you continue to celebrate throughout the week. Go to some good parties. Get dressed up. Yeah. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> uh, thanks again for all the recent ratings and reviews. Uh, they definitely help us find new listeners next to personal recommendations more than anything else. And thanks to the hundreds of new Patreon subscribers who signed up recently. Uh, very much appreciated. Yay! Uh, if you haven't been by in a while, we have lots of new fun stuff at badmagicmerch.com. New cool challenge coin, uh, Hallow's Eve hang tea. We will be doing less announcements here just to get into stories more quickly. So if you want to keep uh, up to date on what's going on, uh, go to the bottom of badmagicmerch.com's page and there's an email list you can sign up for for notifications. Ba-boom. Ba-boom. And uh, now it's story time. Stories. How many do you have? I have two. I have a story about the Museum of Shadows, which is a real place. Um, and I think that you're going to like it. It's uh, is it Las Vegas. No, is it's not. Zach, it's not Zach Bagans. Oh, okay. It is not. It is in Omaha. Oh, I'm thinking of the Omaha, Doll of Shadows. Somewhere in the middle of America. <laughs> and what's your <laughs> other story? Counting crows for you. Uh, <laughs> and then my second story is the the story is the Witch's Water Tower, and it is a great Ouija board spirit summoning spoopy takes place on Halloween. Nice story, and is fantastic. I have three stories today instead Ugh. of my uh, normal two. Uh, my first tale revolves around the possible curse of the Iceman mummy. Oh. Are a series of deaths related to the discovery of a very ancient body found near the border of Italy and Austria. Next, we stay in Europe and head to Spain, examining the mysteries of La Musara, La Musara excuse me, an abandoned village near the city of Tarragona. 
Does the fog that frequently blankets the town have anything to do with numerous disappearances, all kinds of paranormal sightings? Mm-hmm. So lore and an alleged modern encounter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then finally, a good old-fashioned haunting in Chicago. <gasps> Chicago. But one that leads to the first nationali- or first nationally televised exorcism uh, when the Beckers sought to rid their home of threatening paranormal activity. Okay. I love Chicago. Midwest gal. Mm-hmm. You get it. Are you ready to begin? Does your streak of wearing new spoopy socks every week continue? It continues. I love these ones. They're little like alien socks and they say going places. <laughs> that is a fun one. Oh, they're silly. You can see like a little person getting like uh, and beamed up. Beamed up. Okay. Decent amount of historical setup on this first one as okay, you settle great. in. I think very interesting stuff. Uh, the famous Iceman mummy, nicknamed Utsi the Iceman, was discovered in a sheet of melting ice on a mountain glacier over 30 years ago. On September 19th, 1991, two German hikers, Helmut Simon and his wife Erica, were hiking in the Tyrolean Utstall Alps on the border between Italy and Austria when they made the discovery. They were skirting around a glacier at 10,530 feet. Um, sorry, now I'm like, uh, okay, I did say Italy and Austria. For some reason, I, I thought I didn't say Austria earlier, and I was like, wait a minute. Uh, Wait a minute. I've said two places that don't connect. (laughs) They were skirting around a glacier at 10,530 feet when they saw part of a body protruding from the ice. It had been a particularly warm summer, which had melted the ice much more than normal and exposed the body to the elements. And the hikers, they thought it was the body of somebody who had died recently, and they called the police to report what they had found. A team of rescuers soon arrived, and they also initially thought the body belonged to a missing person who had died in a recent hiking accident a fate far from uh, being unheard of in this area. And they started digging the body out of the ice using axes and jackhammers. None of them were archaeologists, so they weren't really concerned about preserving what would turn out to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, archaeological finds of the 20th century. Oh, shit. They probably destroyed so much. (laughs) Took five days to fully free the Iceman's body. A helicopter then transported the remains to the Institute of Forensic Medicine at Innsbruck Medical University in Austria, where archaeologist Conrad Spindler examined the remains, and then announced that the body was at least 4,000 years old. Oh, my God. Those hikers had stumbled upon the extremely rare find of an ancient, naturally preserved mummy. And this mummy became internationally known as the Iceman. He was nicknamed Utsi based on the location of his remains. Utsi is now the most extensively studied mummy in archaeological history. His body and his belongings discovered either on him or nearby, had been nearly perfectly preserved in glacial ice for thousands of years, longer actually than Conrad Spindler first thought. He is at least 5,100 years old. He lived over 51 centuries ago, very likely around 53 centuries ago. Over 400 artifacts in total will be found at the discovery site. Uchi was wearing a fur robe, a woven grass cape, a fur hat, and leather shoes. Researchers found a bow and quiver, copper-bladed axe, flint dagger with a sheath, and many other items. Unbelievable. Uh, he was around 45 when he died, stood five foot two, weighed around 110 pounds. Skinny guy. Mm-hmm. Was, he had a lean build, but wasn't particularly healthy. He suffered from Lyme disease, intestinal parasites, stomach ulcers, and gastritis when he died. Hey. His teeth and joints were worn down, likely from arthritis, and the inside of his lungs were partially covered in soot. In 2001, an x-ray exam found an arrowhead lodged in his left shoulder, theorized that Utsi bled to death after being ambushed, hit on the head, he also had wounds to his skull, and shot by that arrow that damaged his subclavian artery. Utsi most likely died very close to where his body was found. But all this history, and there was so much more I could share. They actually 
knew what he ate before he died and all kinds of other things. That's amazing. Science is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, of course, not why I'm talking about him here. After a series of people related to Uzi's discovery died prematurely and in rapid succession, some began to believe that the Iceman's remains were uncovered or when they were uncovered, so was an ancient curse. Time now for the tale of ice and death. The first victim of the alleged curse was 64-year-old Rainier Hen, head of the forensic team that conducted the initial thorough examination of Utsi's body. Hen was one of the first people to have contact with the remains, picking it up with his bare hands and placing it in a body bag. Within a year of doing this, Hen died in a car accident on his way to give a lecture about Utsi. Very soon after his passing, within weeks, 52-year-old Kirk Fritz, the mountaineer who had led Hen and other researchers to Utsi's body, died in an avalanche also happened to be the only member of his climbing party to be struck by said avalanche. A few months later, Austrian journalist Rainier Hotzel, only person, the only person allowed to film the removal of Utzi's body, died of a brain tumor months after releasing a documentary about the Iceman's excavation. He was 47. One of the strangest deaths was that of Helmut Simon, one of the two hikers who found the remains. He died while hiking in the Alps in the same region where Utzi was found. Shortly before his death, Helmut and his wife Erica traveled to Bolzano to see Utzi's remains. He had developed an affection for the mummy, called him his brother. On October 15, 2004, the 67-year-old hiker left a village near Salzburg to go hiking alone. His wife and frequent hiking partner chose not to go with him at this time, and then he never returned home alive. His body was found on October 22nd in a stream in the mountains, thought he fell about 300 feet to his death during an avalanche. Ugh. He died just weeks before his lawyers were going to open a case for him to receive a $250,000 finder's fee from the Italian government for helping to find Utsi. Then, within an hour of Helmut Simon's funeral, 45-year-old Dieter Wernicke, head of the mountain rescue team, sent out to find him, died of a heart attack. In early 2005, Conrad Spindler, the first archaeologist to inspect Utsi's remains, made his disdain for the curse publicly known, saying it's all media hype. The next thing you will be saying... I will be next. And he was right. Weeks after that announcement, April 18th, Conrad died at the age of 66. Holy shit. Final known death associated with the curse was Dr. Tom Loy, who led the DNA analysis of Utsi's remains. He was finishing a book about his discovery when he was found dead in his home in Brisbane, Australia in October of 2005 at the age of 63. Tom's brother Gareth told the media outlet, The Australian, that his autopsy was inconclusive and that shortly after Gareth had started working on the Iceman project, he developed a blood clot disorder. All seven of these deaths occurred with, within four years of the discovery of the Iceman's body, while several individuals involved in studying Utsi are still alive. The close connections of those who died to the original excavation and study are at the very least eerie. Could they all be nothing more than coincidence? Of course. Or was Utsi the Iceman buried high in a remote part of a frozen mountain for a good reason? Because he was dangerous. Was he feared? Did he die with a curse on his lips? Has his spirit sought revenge against the people who disturbed his remains? And will this alleged curse claim any more victims? All questions we'll never have answers to, as the only people we could ask all died over five millennia ago. That's so crazy. That they, like, seven people? Yeah, yeah, it is a lot. Because, like, one or two, you're uh -huh. kind of like, ah, okay. And then uh, quite a few of them, young. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. nobody was, like, 90. Right, no one was natural causes. Oh, man. Yeah, just boom, 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 boom. That is fascinating. Um, I have some cool pictures. This first one is Utsi's remains preserved, yeah, like I said before, preserved so well that we know that his final meal was some Ibex meat 
uh, some fat from the ibex, some red deer meat. What's ibex? Um, it's a type. It's like um, I don't know if it's a member of the deer family. Oh, it looks kind of like a deer to me, like a deer or an antelope. Oh. I've never um, even heard that word. Um, some red deer meat, icorn wheat, and some traces of fern. And actually, the fern was toxic. They think that like basically, basically, it sounds like he had an ancient equivalent of a sandwich. Uh, or a wrap wrapped in fern to preserve it. And, and the uh, fern was poisonous? Yeah, so don't think he, they, they just think like little microscopic parts of it, you know, bled into the stuff that he didn't actually eat the fern. Yeah. That it was probably used to hold the meal in place. Right, because he didn't have bread, because he didn't have an mm-hmm. oven. Like blah, he's blah, hiking, blah. so like yeah, a little yeah. portal, like a hot pocket, like an ancient hot pocket. <laughs> and then- uh, Just eating the insides. <laughs> they also discovered they had numerous tattoos and it was cool. They were able to tell what his final meal was. And able to tell that he had lunch at a lower altitude earlier on the day he died because of pollen and stuff that was mixed into some of the uh, other food that was more digested. Unbelievable. That wouldn't exist at that altitude. Yeah, really cool stuff. God, that's amazing. Um, this next one's a Smithsonian reconstruction of how he may have looked in life shortly before he died. So he lived He lived a much harder 45-ish years than I have. I was just thinking like how similar you guys look. He's, he's making me feel young. That's when you don't have doctors or... Dentists or orthodontists or skincare products, and you live out in, uh, just in the open elements and he are fighting. Look, and he doesn't look horrific. No, he, he doesn't. He looks well past forty-five. Mm-hmm. He's he gonna, looks. He's going to age a little more if you're dodging arrows all the time and you're weathered. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then this last one, another Smithsonian reconstruction. This of his uh, entire body with some of the clothes he was wearing. Okay. Lean and mean. Yeah, yeah, little guy. Mm-hmm. Little feisty guy, I imagine. I well, I think you'd have to be. Uh-huh. And like uh beneficial to be small, good, good for hiding, good for yeah. moving quickly, you know, less uh mm-hmm. surface area to hit with arrows. And you're and you're not doing like bulking and stuff back then. What? Like, you're not? <laughs> there's not a wait, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah, trying there's, to get bigger. There's not a strongest man Mm-mm. contest. You just you're just wow. uh, probably yeah, in your best interest, like so you're not eating lots of your village's food. Yeah. You gotta you gotta keep it small. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So yeah, I thought that was a little different story than we normally tell here. Yeah, but I like I like a little lore. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, and this next one, a little mix of lore, and then also some uh, more of a, the type of horror we normally tell here. Okay. Would you Would you be willing to work on Utsi? Let's like just say that you were some incredible famed archaeologist I, I scientist. Would. You wouldn't be afraid of death. No, because other a number of other people have lived still. It would be in my head a little bit, but I think uh, if I was like really excited about, you know, like if you're in that field, you're super passionate about it. Yeah. And it's such an amazing discovery. I think if I had the invite, I'd still want to work on him. I want to be the person that finds some, like just to be hiking and then seeing this body. Mm -hmm. I mean, initially, of course, you'd be horrified that you have, you have found, you know, a modern day murder or what have you. But to find an artifact like that, to find just this (laughs) 400 artifacts, I think you said, and Uh then to find this body and like, I imagine- Frozen in the ice. Yeah. I feel like as more information came out about it, you know, as they were discovering how old this person really wasn't all of that, you would feel a certain kind of connection to just being human, just the human Mm, condition. mm -hmm. And just like when someone- passes away, you know, and you sort of examine your life or you have big milestones or I don't know, just like little things happen that are very pivotal, I guess. Like that, that would change how I view the world. And yeah. 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 It's weird to think about like dying now 
and then having, uh, and then just be, you know, frozen somewhere and then not be discovered by anyone else until like the year, you know, 7,520 or something. Died with cell phone in hand and they're like, (laughs) this idiot probably fell taking a selfie. (laughs) Wow. Uh, That was great. I I just love that for just all all the pieces. The lore. uh, I didn't know anything about the Iceman. It's cool. Okay, good. Uh, well, we'll just roll right into the next story. I'll break for sponsors before my third tale. Okay. So just a few wor- few words of setup before jumping right into the paranormal. La Musara is an abandoned village in the Prades Mountains near the city of Tarragona, Spain. And it's been given the sinister nickname of the ghost town where people disappear. <laughs> Funny. Time now for the tale of Fear the Fog. This ghost town sits on steep cliffs at the edge of a forest. A travel site describes the town's current desolate status stating, During the day, the only sound you'll hear in the abandoned settlement of La Musara in the high hills of Catalonia is the croaking of frogs from the village pond. Those who now come to explore the area will find several surviving structures, some of them centuries old. The history of why La Musara became a ghost town is steeped in mystery. The village was at least somewhat inhabited up until the 1950s, but then the remaining residents seemed to have abandoned their homes, possibly all on the same day, quickly and for reasons unknown. A reporter visited the ghost town in 1958, noticed that it seemed like all the residents had left in a big rush, leaving their books on their desks, boxes strewn about the church, doors to their homes wide open. Why? Some believe the residents fled due to the land being cursed. There have been numerous unexplained events in the village and surrounding area happening for at least the past 50 years. Unsolved disappearances, visitors experiencing time loss, UFO sightings, encounters with various apparitions. All of these encounters are believed by many to be connected to an ominous and mysterious fog that frequently is found in the area. It's said that clouds of this mystical fog regularly appear quickly and out of nowhere. They can and often do descend on the village even on the clearest of summer days. In certain cases, the fog leaves people caught inside of it feeling extremely disoriented. Some have claimed that being caught in the fog has caused them to lose large amounts of time. When the fog lifts, they'll think they've only been inside it for minutes or hours and then realize they've lost a full day or more. Other visitors have claimed to hear strange voices or the sound of horses' hooves emanating from within the fog, despite the fact that there are no horses or anything or anyone else nearby when the fog lifts. The sounds of other strange creatures have been heard in the fog. In 2019, Forbes published an article on La Musara that featured an interview with a man who stated, I went with my girlfriend one night. We stayed close to the village. At midnight, we heard strange noises, like horses neighing, but we knew there were no horses nearby. Before we went to La Musara, we didn't believe the paranormal was real. Now we are not so sure. Next to this fog, La Piedra del Seis, the sixth uh, stone, is often most cited as a reason for the area's strange paranormal events. La Piedra del Seis lies at an entrance to the village, a short stone pillar that some think might be a portal to another universe. According to local lore, if you jump over it, which I would not recommend due to its proximity to a cliff's edge, you may end up in a completely different location or in another world entirely. The small stone column has been associated with numerous legends regarding disappearances throughout the village's history. Perhaps the most well-known documented disappearance in the village is that of 37-year-old Enrique Martinez Ortiz, who disappeared in broad daylight on October 16, 1991. Enrique and his friends were visiting La Musara to pick mushrooms. It seemed like he was having a nice time chatting with his friends before he fell a bit behind the rest of the group and then was never seen again. All that was left behind was the bucket he was carrying with him. The group's transportation was right where they left it, meaning Enrique did not take the car and leave on his own. 
There were no signs of a struggle to show that he'd been attacked by an animal or some human. No one in the group saw or heard anything strange. Enrique just simply vanished. Authorities launched an extensive search for Enrique, but found zero evidence pointing towards his whereabouts. Years later, when asked about his disappearance, Enrique's wife, Anna, said, or Anna, said, according to his friends, he disappeared in the place where the television antennas are. They marked the location they traveled to, and there was no cliff or anything like that nearby. They were in two groups and were talking. Antonio called out for Enrique, and he answered him. But then later when he called, Enrique did not answer. Antonio turned around and looked, and Enrique was no longer there. He suddenly just disappeared. After three or four days following Enrique going missing, the governor of Tarragona sent about 200 soldiers to search the area, and they didn't find a single clue. Not a trace, nothing. Uh, Even some psychics got involved in the case, according to Anna. They could not locate him either, but did feel that wherever Enrique went, he did not go willingly. Did Enrique fall victim to the mysterious fog? Did he tempt fate and jump over La Piedra del Seis? Is La Musara simply a ghost town with no ties to the paranormal or something much, much more mysterious? Now for an alleged modern encounter. It was a few years ago. A friend I've had since childhood and I were driving along the Mediterranean coast, up from Malaga all the way back down to Naples, with another friend of ours from Belgium we'd only met a few months before. I'm not listing any names on the off chance that the authorities could somehow trace my location and identity from this post. I have not committed a crime, but I am not sure that they would believe that. Our Belgian friend went missing, and as the last known people to see him alive, we have already been questioned numerous times and are definitely suspects in his disappearance. A disappearance I cannot imagine will ever be solved. I do not know much, and I was the very last person who saw him. I need to share what I know here on the rare chance that someone will read this who might have experienced something similar. Maybe you will have answers that I don't. Here's what I remember. The three of us had decided to take a small detour off the main highway to visit the ghost town of La Musara. As we climbed up towards the plateau, the old town rests on, via a narrow and winding road. Before we even made it to La Musara, the fog, that horrible fog, started to roll in. It came out of nowhere. It was sunny and warm, and closer to lunch than breakfast. Not the normal time of day or weather, for fog in my experience. We drove up to the ruins of the old church, got off of our bikes, and the fog began to cover us, and with it a cold that chilled us to our bones. We all exchanged, this is weird, right? Glances with one another, and then I heard it. A sound similar to a bird's cry, one in distress, a creature being attacked. The noise of growling, crunching, and the sudden silence of the bird followed. The sounds of one animal killing and then feasting upon another. And then I felt something race past me. I have no idea what it was, but I remember thinking it was large and moving impossibly fast. Almost simultaneously, I heard something overhead and saw another large, shadowy thing flying by. The fog was too thick to make out any details. Suddenly, I was terrified. Something was off, very off, about all of this. I hopped back on my bike and yelled towards my friends, Let's go! Back down below! And I started up my engine. My childhood friend was off and riding before I was. My Belgian friend said something like, Yeah, let's get the hell out of here. I'm not totally sure. Because as he spoke, before he finished, I noticed that some large creature, roughly the shape of a bear, again, it was hard to really see due to the thick fog, was charging towards him from behind. And right as he was finishing speaking and kick-starting his bike, this thing gnashed its teeth down on his upper arm and ripped him from his seat. He screamed out wildly and thrashed about as he was quickly dragged backwards into the ever-thickening fog. Once he was five to ten meters away from me, I could no longer see him. 
but I could still hear his frightened cries. And then I saw another beast in the shadows moving towards me. I threw my biking gear and sped off as fast as I could. I drove recklessly through the fog. I would have rather have crashed into another vehicle or driven off of the road than to have one of those things carry me screaming deeper into the mysterious mist. For the next minute or so, as I sped back down the road, dark shapes flew above me. Other things raced across the road, both ahead and behind me. I could hear strange cries from all around. I never heard my friend again, though. When I made it out of the fog, I found my other friend standing along the side of the road. He'd parked his bike and was bent over with his hands upon his knees. He had been vomiting. Once he composed himself, we talked briefly about what we should do next. Who should we tell? As we spoke, the fog lifted. It happened so fast. I had never seen fog melt away so quickly like that. The road back up to La Mosara was clear again, nothing but sunshine and blue skies. We decided to race back up and look for our friend before alerting the authorities. Back up near the church, we found his bike. But our friend was gone. Disappeared without a trace, other than a small trail of blood that led from his bike towards some deserted house, and then just abruptly stopped. We spent the next few hours looking all over for him, but found nothing. And then we wondered if it would be a good idea to notify the police. What were, what were we supposed to tell them? That some monster in the fog took him? My friend did not even see what happened to him, but he did also see and hear strange creatures in the mist. We both knew that no one would believe us unless they had experienced the same thing. So we just rode on out of the area, telling no one. We were not questioned for a week or so, not until a few days after making it back home. The story that we have stuck to is that he told us that something came up suddenly with his family back home in Belgium and that he would connect with us back in Malaga after our trip. And then off he went and we have no idea what happened to him. At least some of that is true. We don't really know what happened to him. What was that fog? What was inside of it? I think and I've thought so long about what all of this could be that the fog somehow contains creatures from another world in it and that all three of us briefly existed in some space that straddles the line between this world and another, a horrible other world. I think our friend was dragged into that world and that no one in this world is ever going to see him again. Another victim of the terrible fog of La Musara. I mean, I'm just going to say that if I uh, know the, the lore of this fog, I'm not going up there. <laughs> I don't know that they did. I don't know that he, uh, he knew. Well, I'm telling you. Not going to do it. Because it's so risky. If the mm. fog comes from nowhere, mm -hmm. there's no warning, you're screwed. Fog is, uh, God, what, what was the name of the book? Um, Stephen King, The Mist? I think it was just called The Mist, an old Stephen King book yeah. about this mysterious so. fog that like kind of just covers everything all around like this town and just like stays and there's like monsters or something. I can't remember how it ends, but I remember there's like, there's monsters in it. It reminded me of this story. That sounds very or This familiar. story reminded me of that story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fog is inherently creepy as shit as well. Yeah, it is. Where it, even like, uh, you know, just like living by a lake when the temperatures mm -hmm. are just right. It can be early morning, like, you know, four or five in the morning. Yeah. You're just running to grab a coffee or going to the gym, whatever. And, and even then with like, there is some sunlight. Mm -hmm. it, it's pretty, but it's spooky. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. at night, it is terrifying. Everything becomes shadowy. Mm -hmm. You're just seeing shapes rather than like distinct details of creatures. What if the fog, the fog is like so thick, you know? And then if you saw like a hand kind of like protrude. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> I don't think I want to live in a foggy place. Like Seattle's out for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just can't, can't have hands in the fog. Makes flying a pain too. Yes, it does. San Francisco, thank you very much. A few pictures. This first one is an aerial shot of the uh, Spanish cliffside ghost town of La Mosara. 
La Moussa. Beautiful. Oh, yeah, really pretty. And did you say it's, did, did you say something about Catalonia? Uh, I think that's the region it's in, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, this next one is shot of that fog rolling into the area. Okay. Doesn't seem that thick. No, not where the the picture taker is standing, like over that little ridge. I know you can see it, like uh-huh. getting thicker, getting more opaque. Um, I think that's a, a thing about fog too. It's like if it really, if like you're in the fog, you can't mm-hmm. really take a good picture of the fog. No, no, it just looks like white out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like when you're flying and you go through like mm-hmm. big clouds, that's how I think of yeah. a really thick cloud. Yeah. Cloud? Yeah, some clouds. You know, some clouds. Some fog clouds. Yeah, clouds. New, <laughs> new word. <laughs> and then this uh, next one is La Piedra del Seis, the sixth stone. It's uh, kind of a tongue twister. The sixth stone. The sixth Makes me wanna, stone. I can't do it without like a lisp. Maybe you can just say the sixth stone. Like six, least, six stones. Sixth stone. If you just leave out the th, I think it's almost like implied. Yeah. It almost happens the naturally. Sixth stone, yeah. The sixth stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just kind of yeah. happens. Um, I'm sorry. How are you supposed to fucking jump over that? I guess from that like- is, That is a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. Yeah. Look at that. That is so close to the edge. Uh-huh. That is so close to the edge of glory. Oh my God. I'm having like songs in my head. Early on, you said in this story, you said like, I don't know much. And immediately. But I don't know much. I don't know. Yep. But I don't know. <laughs> and I had to like keep myself from busting out laughing. I was like, oh man, DJ Honey, he probably loves that song. He does. DJ Honey. We got Aaron Neville coming up after the break. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that stone. Yeah. Okay. You know, you're out on this like ledge and here's the stone. Even if you were to jump this way, uh-huh. like here's you know here's where it yeah. drops down into nothingness. Just a few steps and you're out. Yeah, you stumble, you fall. And then if you're gonna, if you're like, oh, well, it'll be dumb to jump this way because then I'll be off the edge. Okay, so even if you're gonna jump from like the edge inland, there's not. I mean, I understand that it's yeah. a picture; it's not to scale or anything. But I, I don't think anybody should be jumping over that. Just in general, no. forget about portals. <laughs> right, right. That's a terrible yeah, idea. Real dangerous. Real, real, real sketch. <laughs> real sketch. Real sus. Uh, um, okay, the only other thing that really stood out to me in that story mm-hmm. was there there was a deserted house. It, you were just talking like Yeah, in the ghost town. Yeah. And uh when the the friend gets, you know, dragged off his bike and everything, I understand that he's gone missing and it's very complex because you're worried about being held responsible, yeah. yada yada yada. But also like I, my natural inclination is like, oh, person goes missing. I know that there I've I see a trail of blood and there is some abandoned house i'm immediately going to the authorities and saying like hey we were on our bikes our friend disappeared yeah and there's blood and an abandoned house i, I would bet they looked in the abandoned because nothing's locked up or anything it's all just ruins right but it sounds like the friends of the belgian dude just were like fucking we're out of here i mean they looked for a few hours oh okay. yeah 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 they did they did look for a few hours i must have zoned out for a minute focused on like what i would do totally yeah yeah so i mean in that case it's like i mean i, I do kind of get it it seems suspicious and what do you do i know what do you do their cover story isn't amazing either i can't believe it's held up oh he had a family emergency so he just left <laughs> yeah uh, yeah like, uh, okay <laughs> sure are you uh are you ready to leave europe for chicago chicago i am let's get some pizza Before we head across the Atlantic for a tale of a haunted home, time for our mid-show sponsor break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know that feeling when you suddenly realize you have an hour-sized hole in your schedule and you get so excited to fill it with something you love? Maybe it's an hour to get to the gym, go on a hike, cook yourself a special meal, or simply read a good book. Most of us wish we had more time for the things we love. If your time was unlimited, what would you do with it? One way to make space in your busy life for the things that are special to you is to identify those things and then prioritize them. Therapy is an excellent way to sift through your obligations and to sort out the things that you need to do and weigh them against what you want to do. Once you do that, a therapist can help you find ways to make more time for the things you enjoy doing. Dan, you and I know all about trying to find balance between obligations and hobbies. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, we spent so many years with our heads down trying to grow our business that we lost sight of the things we enjoy doing outside of work. Mm -hmm. This year, I've been working with my therapist to reevaluate what brings me joy and how to find more time to do it. I love to read, to cook, to work out, to show up for my friends, and to serve my community. I lost all of that in our hustle and grind. By working with my therapist, I have found small pockets of time in my schedule that I could not see before. Turns out I do have a few hours every week that I can work out. Can I do everything I want? Of course not. But I no longer feel like I can't do anything at all. And I no longer feel paralyzed by the weight of my life. It's a process for sure, but one I could not work through without therapy. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash scared to death today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scared to death. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact. Hope you heard some appealing sponsor deals. Be sure and use our codes and landing pages for some savings and let the sponsors know you listen. Thank you, Creeps and Peepers. Thank you. So no setup for this one. I'll just share the story. Time now for the tale of the Becker family haunting. Sinister paranormal events that occurred in Chicago between 1970 and 1971 would result in the first ever exorcism to be aired on U.S. national television quite possibly the first exorcism to be broadcast on TV anywhere in the world. And to be clear, they did exercise a home, not a person. In July of 1970, Marcia and Edwin Becker, a newly married couple with a baby on the way, were over the moon with happiness and eager and feeling ready to start the next chapter of their lives. Unfortunately, their new dream of marital and family bliss was about to become a nightmare. When Edwin went to pay rent that month, chatting idly with the landlady and brimming with happiness, He told her of the daughter he was expecting within the next two months, and then felt his world begin to crumble around him as she informed him that he would have to quickly find another place to live. His lease agreement not only stated that he was unable to have any pets, it also stated that children were not allowed to live in his unit. What? Lease lease restrictions such as this one had been made illegal in 1970, but either his landlady hadn't realized that or figured she could still get away with discriminating against families. Yeah, that was a that was a fairly common thing. Whatever the case, Edwin felt he and Marcia and their baby-to-be had no choice but to start looking for another place to live. After about a month of scanning the local papers for the right deal and looking to buy a place this time so they wouldn't have to worry about moving again, he finally found something affordable and went to go have a look at the property. 
the real estate agent who met him for a tour of a so-called Chicago two-flat, a.k.a. a duplex, mm. immediately gave him a funny feeling. But he brushed it off, exchanged pleasantries, shook hands, and entered the building. Immediately upon making his way inside, an angry, decrepit-looking old lady came running towards them from the smaller of the two units, screaming. Edwin almost jumped out of his skin as she roared at him to get out. She told him that he could never, ever have her place, that her family had built this old building, and that no one outside their family was ever to possess it. The agent put his hand on Edwin's shoulder, tried to reassure him, saying, Oh, that's just Mira. Don't pay any attention to her. And they moved on with their tour. The agent informed Edwin that Mira would be moving out just as soon as the building sold. Her family had already arranged for her to be, for her to be placed into a home. He also said that the building had been in her family for many, many years and that she was the last one who still lived in it. None of this made Edwin feel great about the place. Leaving him feeling worse when he and the, next, uh, and the agent next walked into the main unit where Edwin and his wife and soon their child would be living, it was clear that the place had been vandalized. Edwin was told to pay no attention to the mess. It would be easy to clean up, not a problem. The more time Edwin spent with the agent, the less he liked him and the less he liked the building. The man dismissed any and all of Edwin's concerns as if they were unimportant and frivolous. No big deal. Nothing to worry about. Easily fixed. He also seemed anxious, nervous. In retrospect, he seemed like he was hiding something. Maybe he was. Maybe he already encountered the unknown in the building. Maybe he'd already been terrified and was hoping to leave it all behind. His behavior raised a lot of red flags, but Edwin was desperate. He knew after a few weeks of looking around that there was not going to be a better deal. So the tour continued. After only walking Edwin through a few rooms of the building, the agent was ready to end the tour, clearly hesitant to show him the rest of the space. When Edwin insisted, he rushed through the rest of the process. Edwin was about to object and push back a bit, but then he ran into Mira again. When he passed by a room that she was in, her eyes were intensely fixed upon him. If looks could have killed, he would have died right then and there. After that, he was ready to be done with the tour. Despite Mira, despite the shady-seeming agent, Edwin left the building feeling... A little excited? The place definitely needed a lot of work, but he felt up for the challenge. Whatever work he put in would just add value to a home that was truly his. He and his wife would actually own it. They'd make it their home and could study as long or could stay as long as they wanted. So they put in an offer and it was immediately accepted. The day that the couple moved in, all seemed well. The first few days were typical unpacking boxes and grabbing takeout pizza. Everything was going just fine until Marcia unpacked what she called her pride and joy a beautiful china candy dish. She set it in the middle of the dining room table, turned away for a split, a split second. When she turned back, it had moved to the table's edge. Very strange. She wrote it off, thinking she must have somehow not placed it where she thought she did, even though she felt certain that she had put it in the center of the table just like she had always done in the past. Then later that day, when Ed and Marshall were eating dinner, the light in the dining room started to flash, but not haphazardly. No, it flickered in and out in what felt like an intentional kind of rhythm. Marsha wondered if it was Morse code, like someone sending them a message. Ed laughed that off, strongly assuming it was just a fading light caused by either a dying bulb or faulty wiring or some other electrical problem. He added it to his list of other things that needed to be taken care of. Then for the next several weeks, nothing unusual happened. The couple's new home, other than being a bit beat up, seemed fine. The next event would have been easily written off if it didn't become a frequent occurrence. Around a month after they moved in, Ed tried to call Marsha at home while he was on break at work, but the line was busy. Tried again on his next break. Line still busy. Same thing happened several more times over the course of the day. 
He was never able to get through to his wife, and that concerned him because Marcia was never one to spend much time on the phone. When he got home that night, Ed was irritated, wondering who his wife had suddenly been speaking with all day. After confronting her, Marcia stormed over to the phone and discovered that someone had taken the phone off the hook. Again, not a big deal as an isolated incident. This could have easily just been an accident, but this would happen again many more times in the future. And combined with everything else that would happen, it would end up feeling not like an accident. It would feel like a a part of a pattern of harassment, like something sowing discord into their marriage, something trying to pry them apart. Meanwhile, the Becker's daughter was born, and now Marcia was trying to adapt to life with the new baby and finding out that motherhood was a lot harder than she'd expected. Like most new mothers, she was sleep-deprived, trying to push through brain fog and days feeling like she was on autopilot. Then in the midst of this new mental state, things started to occur around the house that could not be rationalized away. Things of an obvious paranormal nature. For instance, one morning as she was putting away the dishes, Marcia jumped back and screamed as the cabinet door flew open and plates started to fall out and smash into little pieces all over the floor. Later that same day, some new potential renters of the building's smaller unit, Diane and Dan White, were coming to view the downstairs apartment. They appeared to be a couple in a similar situation to the Beckers with the baby around the same age. Marcia immediately felt comfortable around Diane. Her demeanor and kind look in her eyes made her feel like she would have an ally in the building. Edwin and Marcia wasted no time offering them the vacant apartment, Mark Mira's old unit. And now they, too, would be tormented in ways that simply couldn't be written off as being the normal sights and sounds of an old building. Shortly after the new couple settled in, Dan got home from work to find the chandelier swinging around at a speed that could not be attributed to coming from a natural source. No draft could have created the witnessed momentum. Dan reached up to stop the movement, and when it didn't repeat, he tried not to dwell on it. A couple days later, Diane and Marcia were spending time together with her children when Diane placed her baby in a walker. The walker was still way too big for her baby's legs to reach the floor. It was more like a little chair. And now, while the ladies chatted about Diane's in-laws, the wheels of the walker started to move on their own. The walker unnaturally picked up speed, and Diane had to sprint across the room to keep her baby from falling down the stairs. Holy shit. Marcia was now 100% convinced that the house was haunted by something malevolent, and she wanted Ed to investigate what was in their home and why. Ed had no real idea what to do but he decided to begin by exploring the basement. He'd barely been down there since they'd moved in. He thought that maybe he'd find some clue, something that would give him some understanding or insight as to what might be in their home, if there actually was something in their home. He didn't find much, but did come across a few things that definitely raised his eyebrows, starting with a jar containing Monopoly pieces and bullets. He wondered why someone would keep those items together. In the next basement room, Ed found stacked from floor to ceiling massive piles of girly mags from the 30s in addition to shoeboxes full of clippings of various parts of the women cut out from other magazines. Ed decided to keep this massive and disturbing, thanks to the cutout parts, uh, stash of early 20th century pornography, secret from his wife, worried it would only upset her more than she already was. And she was upset and about to become more so. A few weeks later, while Marcia was taking a bath, she began to feel the presence of something with her in the room. This feeling grew stronger and stronger until she felt some kind of actual force in the bathroom near her, as if the air around her were physically touching her skin. She finally felt freaked out enough to get up, throw a towel around herself, and run to the phone to call Ed at work. Her husband still wasn't sure if he believed her. He had yet to experience anything other than a busy phone line and a flashing light bulb things that could easily be explained away rationally. 
but he still agreed to Marsha's request that they bring in a priest to bless their home. What could it hurt? Maybe quite a bit, actually, as we've seen here before. For every blessing that seems to calm down poltergeist activity, it seems as if there are two or more where it only angers whatever is haunting the home. Much to Marsha's relief, the priest was able to come and visit the house in just a few days' time. He arrived armed with a black satchel containing his Bible, brass vial of holy water, and various religious objects. The priest began by walking through the house, sprinkling holy water around and praying. And then his blessing ritual was interrupted by a loud crash, heard by all present, when the brass vial shattered in the priest's hands. Marsha screamed and was stunned silent. What had just happened? Brass is not supposed to be able to shatter. It's not like glass. The priest himself seemed rattled, left a few minutes later before completing the blessing. Now Ed was a believer. Truly curious now, also, as to why the home was haunted. The next day, Ed went to pay a visit to a neighbor, Walter, to discuss the history of the house over a glass of whiskey. Walter mentioned that he had lived next door for nearly 50 years, and that the previous family, the Verdares, the only family to have lived in the home before the Beckers, had been very strange. He also stated that he was sorry that the Beckers had moved into the house with a young child. Hearing that did not make Ed feel good. Walter explained that the house had been built around 1900, and the original owners literally never spoke to either Walter or his wife, ever, not in nearly half a century. Everyone else in the neighborhood found them, at the very least, to be strange and unnaturally private, and at worst, scared by them. The Verdere family had three unknown or three known children, including two sons and a daughter who Ed had met, Mira. Both sons died in the home. One died early in childhood, and then the oldest child, Ben, who Walter said was the alpha of the house and seemed quite controlling, passed away in the bathtub from a coronary as an adult. Ed immediately had a feeling that Ben's spirit was the source of their problems. He thought about the bullets, the magazines, the clippings of women's parts in the basement, about his wife feeling a presence when she was taking a bath. This made him angry. Why was Ben harassing his wife instead of him? How could he get Ben's spirit to leave? Soon after Ed's meeting with Walter, another strange event was witnessed in the Becker building, one that felt sinister. Late one night, Marsha and Ed overheard a violent interaction between a man and a woman. Marsha wanted to intervene, but Ed assumed it was Dan and Diane, and he felt that they should stay out of their business unless somebody called out for help. Meanwhile, Dan and Diane woke up hearing the same altercation and assumed it was Marsha and Ed. Dan did decide to intervene, but as soon as he opened his door to investigate, the screaming and yelling abruptly stopped immediately, and in a way that didn't feel natural. Not long after hearing this phantom fight, Ed decided he needed to tell Marsha about the collection of girly mag clippings in the basement, and about a woman named Olivia who lived in their home, a woman Walter had told him about. She was of Spanish descent and the only non-family member to ever live in the building before they moved in. Walter said that their marriage to one of the Beckers, or her marriage to one of the Beckers, was very abusive, always a lot of arguing and screaming, and it only stopped when Olivia sadly hanged herself. Ed thought that the fight they heard was some kind of paranormal reenactment of an earlier fight between Olivia and her husband. Marcia now wanted to move out, but Ed wasn't quite ready to give up their new home. Following hearing this fight, the frequency of activity greatly intensified. Marcia was usually at home on her own with the baby during the day, Ed would leave, leave for work typically at 5 a.m. Marcia was now finding herself spending her days at home pacing back and forth nervously, waiting for the next episode of phantom screaming or slamming doors or flying china. One day, a heavy mixer flew off the counter towards her, narrowly missing her. She was growing more and more worried about the safety of both herself and the baby. 
Diane had also become extremely on edge and would try to spend her days mainly away from the building with her baby, waiting for Dan to come home before she felt comfortable staying inside. They started to look for a new place to live. One evening, when Ed returned home from work, Marcia seemed extremely agitated. She'd been hearing more strange sounds around the house than normal. And then over dinner, both she and Ed watched the front door open on its own. Ed got up from the table and firmly closed it. Sat back down. Just a few minutes later, the door slowly opened again. He got up and shut it once more, making certain it was firmly closed. It was, it definitely was, but somehow it opened again. After another round or two of this, Ed literally tied the door shut. And to he and Marsha's horror, they both now witnessed the door handle wiggle back and forth and the door push up against the rope that bound it. Ed, both angry and scared, yelled into the air, demanding that the spirit leave their home. But of course that didn't happen. If they weren't going to flee, Marsha at least wanted to try and get help from the church again. She made contact with a different church, found a medium and psychic named Joe DeLuise, who agreed to arrange an exorcism of their home with the help of Reverend William Durrell Davis, on the condition that the couple allow it to be broadcast on television. Someone from NBC had heard of the haunting and wanted to document the ritual. On the day of the exorcism, the Becker home was filled with people from the television crew, the medium, the reverend, a few friends. Most of the people present would stay in the living room, while the exorcism would take place in the dining room. Ed was excited that this would be the first ever exorcism filled for TV. He reasoned that if it failed, the station would look bad, so they had a lot of incentive to get it right. Once everything was set up, the exorcist turned towards everyone in the, in the dining room, said that they needed to each hold up a crucifix for protection for the duration of the ritual. Joe DeLuise started the exorcism with a prayer, and as he did, a nervous and ominous energy filled the room. Everyone present began to jump and shudder at the slightest sound. Then, out of nowhere, a very strong gust of wind blew through an open window, violently rattling the blinds. Accompanying the wind was a sound of growling and moaning. The noise quickly became overwhelming and terrifying. Looking out the windows in the midst of this, dozens and dozens of black birds were witnessed circling the house as the reverend began to yell out and cast away evil spirits. Everyone nervously held their crucifixes until the priest finally announced that the house was pure. With his announcement, the strange wind and frightening noises abated, and the circling birds dispersed. The reverend, before leaving, sprinkled blessed, uh, blessed salt throughout the building to help keep the spirits from returning. And now Marcia and Ed, and also Dan and Diane, were left to wonder if the exorcism had actually worked. It seems that it did. But a short time later, someone else would awaken the spirits inside the house all over again. Ed's sister April had watched the exorcism on TV and having a very strong interest in the spirit world, decided she wanted to live in the house with them. Ed was reluctant, but they could use the extra rent money and so he gave in. Soon April arrived, movers showed up with a bunch of her belongings, including a beautiful piano, and shortly after moving in, April invited some of her friends over one night, and all hell would break loose. Marcia was upstairs struggling to get the baby to sleep when she heard crashes and loud bangs from her sister-in-law's gathering downstairs. Running down to check out what the commotion was, Marcia was furious when she found the group of women sitting around a Ouija board. Ed ran downstairs just in time to hear Marcia scream. He flew into a rage, tore the Ouija board apart. April confessed she had just conjured the spirit of a man named Henry. When Ed shared this name with his neighbor Walter later that same day, the old man's eyes grew wide. He explained that Henry was another member of the Verdere family, one he hadn't mentioned, one he wasn't even sure was real. The rumor was that the family kept him hidden away, claiming he was evil. Walter said he had heard that some other neighbors had seen him creeping around through the windows of the second floor. The next day, April's piano started to play itself. 
April had brought their haunting back. And she was excited. She talked incessantly about the connection between herself and the ghost. Initially, this seemed to fill her with pride and joy, but then soon her demeanor changed and she became distant and seemed tormented. She'll eventually confide in Marsha and Ed that she had begun to hear voices coming from the basement urging her to kill herself. Ed went back downstairs to check it out, now found the air to be thick and oppressive. His chest felt tight. He felt like someone was watching him, as if eyes were following him around the room. Walking further in, he noticed, uh, for the first time, something on the back wall, or indeed what he thought was the back wall. There was a door, barely noticeable, but for a heavy metal latch. He struggled with the latch for a few minutes before finally opening it, and inside, there was a small hidden room. The room was completely empty, but somehow Ed knew in his gut that this was where the Verdere family had once locked Henry away. He was overcome with heavy feelings of sorry and anguish and worried for his family's safety. What had April done? What kind of horrible, angry energy had she awakened or reawakened? After this discovery, Ed strongly felt that he and his family had to leave. According to a book he would later write about all this many years later, he sold the home for literally $10 just to be rid of it, then packed up he and his family's things, suffered financially for years in a new series of homes. Homes that he might no longer own, but homes that were at least uh, not haunted. Ones where he wasn't worried about coming home from work to more torment. Or worse, homes where he worried about walking in to find that one or more of his family members had been tormented to death. Where's April? I don't know what happened to April. That bitch. (laughs) I would be so mad at my brother. I would be so mad. What do we decide? Uh, uh, Adana. Yeah, exactly. Adana. The female Darren. Yeah. Mm -hmm. April is a complete Donna. I am so mad at her. Yeah. And you were saying like if your brother, like if like if you, you you mentioned your brother, like if you had a home that like everything, like there was torment and you got things settled down and then they came over, you let him live there. And then he decides to uh, have a seance or play with the Ouija board and brings things back. And I knew that that's where it was going. I knew it. I was like, you stupid idiot <laughs> why would you do that and it's like one thing if it was just the um i can't even remember their names now uh ed and marcia marcia it's so hard not to say ed and lorraine um oh, yeah it would be different if it was just them yeah but there is a like her niece is now living in this space and then yeah. like the neighbors also have a child so, mm-hmm. so you're putting innocent little babies at risk that yeah. that is like probably the part that bothers me the most and uh ed and marcia were not like into this. They weren't like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try and go further. Mm, she snuck it. What a brat. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm so mad at her. She should be kicked out of the family for that. <laughs> She's not allowed to come to Thanksgiving. I have a few pictures. Okay. Uh, nothing of good quality. This is a still image from the televised exorcism. It's a broadcast on NBC. Uh, I would show a bit of the video, but the audio is terrible as far as it's, you know, it's like people who recorded the broadcast on their television on VHS. Oh, boy. And then the VHS is old and has been transferred to digital. And it's just like, it's really degraded. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but that, but that's the uh, the medium and the uh, the reverend. And also, uh, very interesting, uh, a male medium and psychic. Mm. That is the first time... I think in... Oh, yeah. They are usually female in these stories. Traditionally yeah. female. And I don't know why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also like, do you know any male dental hygienists? I think about this all the time when I get my teeth cleaned. I don't know a single one. Yeah, they got to be out there. But that is funny. I can't think of one either. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this next picture, terrible quality. Can't find the actual address listing, but this supposedly is the old Becker home. Okay. And I don't know what street it's on. Well, that's all right. I mean, we don't Yeah, need. just a regular house. And then uh, this next one, pick of a, of a young Ed and Marsha Becker. What was it called? A Chicago two-flat. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're so cute. 
Yeah, yeah, they are very cute. And then this next one is a, a picture of the couple just a few years after that photo was taken. She's got good fringe. I wish <laughs> I can't do it. Oh, yeah, no, that looks right. That's after the torment. Mm-hmm. No, of course, that is a, another stock couple or another stock photo. <gasps> another stock couple. I love me a stock couple. <laughs> They're my favorites. That you just get, you just find that if you just put in young undead couple. There you go. Young undead. Okay. Yet another photo shoot. A Chicago two flat. That was a new. Yeah, I was confused by that too. And you know, like some sometimes what will happen is like if it's a British. Uh, you know, author, uh-huh. you know, writing about, you know, cause there's a lot of like paranormal articles written over in the UK sure, and not all of them about just UK stuff, of course, but about stuff here Yeah, and they'll call like an apartment a flat or something. Mm-hmm. So I was like, huh, a two flat, like a two bedroom apartment. And then I put in, I just searched for Chicago two flat and there's these, uh, basically architecture articles. Yeah. So it's like, it's like a dupe from what I gathered. It's like a duplex, but not like uh, the duplex you would see around here with like, you know, like a townhouse style with like one unit on one side, one unit on the other. Oh, uh-huh. It would be almost like a, an old brownstone that would have be converted into maybe one smaller unit upstairs and then one bigger unit on the bottom stairs, but not necessarily even. Oh, okay. Like little unit, big unit. Okay. I don't think it has to be that way, but it seemed like that was the way a lot of them were set up. So like and maybe they had their main unit where the Becker family lived and then they would rent the little apartment out to like Dan and Diane or whoever. Yeah, yeah. And then I wonder if it's like a top bottom instead of a side by side. Yeah, I couldn't determine that from the articles what this one was exactly. It never said like, it never really laid out the floor plan. Yeah. Uh, I Okay, I know this is a silly detail that I love. Yeah. The Monopoly pieces and bullets in a jar. I was like, listen, Monopoly- but also Monopoly enrages people. <laughs> like I just immediately yeah. was like, actually, yes, I'm very much there. I have definitely wanted to commit murder over Monopoly. It'd be pretty funny to have like a little like for your piece instead of the dog or the top hat, you're just like a nine millimeter, um, you know, like bullet. And then you set that on the game piece and then put your nine millimeter like off to the side, just like unloaded. But you know, you know, yeah. if, 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 if you lose the game, you can always take your playing piece. Oh my gosh. And just uh, put one bullet in the chamber. The next time we play, I think I'm just gonna try and find a shell. Just, you know, and yeah. have that be my piece. Kind of a kind of a badass piece, actually. I know. It's kind of genius. Mm-hmm. Uh okay, the male psychic thing. Yeah. Blackbirds, Ouija board. Oh, and then the the small room uh made me think about the story that you told on this month's bonus episode about the house with all the oh, doors. Yeah. And then there was like you showed a picture of like this like teeny tiny little door. Yeah, creepy little like a uh, goblin door or something. I, like smaller than a goblin, like a mouse mm-hmm. door. Little tiny gr- little tiny gremlin door. Gremlin doors. <laughs> so funny. Oh. Do you want to use my crochetla? Yeah. She's she's so special to me, so I want you to be really gentle with her. Okay. I love her. She's my favorite Layla. Oops. Whoops. <laughs> I got her. She's okay. She's okay. Give her a kiss. Okay. She's got a boo-boo now. Is she okay? She's fine. Okay. She's fine. Right. Wow. That was so cruel. <laughs> Why would you do that? I don't know. Are you a goofball? I'm a little bit of a goof- goofball. You're a little, little bit of a funny guy? A little, little funny guy. I'm <laughs> trying to be a little bit of a funny guy. <laughs> oh my God. My favorite thing today, Kyler said. Big crossword guy. Oh, yeah. We were like, I don't know, is anybody doing like the Apple daily crosswords? We're doing them and like sharing them in our family chat. And uh, Kyler, big crossword guy. Yeah, he killed it. He crushed it in under two minutes. I was mm-hmm. so annoyed. So annoyed. I thought for once maybe I could be better at him than something. But <laughs> nope, I don't think it's going to happen. All right. You ready, Spaghetti? I am. Here we go. Hi, Dan and Lindsay. Hello. Hello. For as long as I can remember, I've always been interested in the paranormal. I'm a major creeper. I can recount tons of experiences with something 
other than our realm of understanding starting at the age of seven. But nothing can top what happened to me in the spring of 2021 and the summer of 2023. Being from North Dakota, being from North Dakota, you can imagine that there isn't a whole lot to do, and especially less if you're into looking for scary haunted shit that has any sort of merit. Even in the biggest city, Fargo, there really isn't anything of much to do. A lot of us Dakotans will take any destination outside of the state as a vacation. In the spring of 2021, I was long overdue for a vacation from my job working for an internet provider in Fargo. As a single and easy-to-please 23-year-old guy, I was searching for bigger cities with awesome attractions that were within driving distance from me. And this led me to Omaha, which was about a seven-hour drive from Fargo. Originally, I was interested in going to Omaha for the Henry Dorley Zoo, regarded as one of the best zoos in the world. Hmm. I booked my hotel stay for a Saturday night, thinking I would be arriving to town, seeing the zoo, going to bed, waking up early Sunday and driving back. When I told my best friend that I was living with at the time about my little trip, he begged to come with me. He is a wildlife biology major and is obsessed with anything related to animals. He also asked if his girlfriend, who I was also close friends with, could come along too. In my head, I was thinking, I knew I shouldn't have said anything. This is supposed to be my weekend. But I conceded, knowing how busy his schedule was, and he was not going to get this opportunity for a long time. We left town at about 5 in the morning and arrived in Omaha by noon. We had a couple of hours to kill before our hotel check-in time, and unbeknownst to me, the zoo was closing in a few hours from that, so we decided to save that part of our trip for Sunday. We would now leave late in the afternoon on Sunday after going to the zoo. While we were burning time, we stumbled upon a creepy-ass-looking building in downtown Omaha with a big sign reading, Museum of the Shadows, hanging Mm -hmm. from it. We all must have noticed it at the same time because right when it caught my attention, my roommate and his girlfriend in sync screamed, pull over. Omaha, Nebraska was the last place on earth I expected to run into a haunted museum, but there was no time to think on it. There was spooky shit inside to look at. One thing to remember is that we had no idea this place existed. So we went in completely blind. And then the museum had a couple of rules. Number one, no taking pictures of anything to avoid a spiritual attachment. Number two, no touching anything. And number three, ask Claire for permission before interacting with her in any way. Claire, who the fuck is that? I asked my roommate, thinking thinking I had missed something the girl working there at the front desk had said. No idea, he said, looking quite spooked by everything surrounding us. The museum was technically separated into three different main sections. The first was the upstairs that you were immediately brought into from the main lobby. This area has the more mild objects, supposedly haunted dolls, mirrors, Ouija boards, so on. Next is the downstairs, which has items with a stronger spiritual connection to it. Some weapons, pieces of furniture, human remains, and other miscellaneous antiques. And finally, towards the back of the museum was this little gated-off area that also had a small room with no door bordering it. There was a dispenser bottle with holy water, and a sign nearby recommended that we use it before entering. I remember being drawn to the room. I looked at my roommate and said, something strong is in there. I feel it pulling at me. At this point, he and his girlfriend refused to step a foot into the gated area, let alone into the room. As I walked in, I noticed another sign. It stated, it is imperative you ask Claire for permission to enter. Failure to do so has resulted in odd happenings. If you see Claire shaking, we strongly encourage you to leave the premises immediately. 
Me being oblivious, me being the oblivious idiot I am, I didn't see the sign until after I left that room in complete terror. All I can remember once entering was this dense, almost electric feeling in the air. I turned to my left and there she was. Claire, another fucking haunted doll. I immediately felt a shock of fear run through me. I was glued to her fake plastic eyes against my own volition. I kept eye contact with her for good 10 seconds, seemingly unable to break the gaze that we shared. After a bit of time eased up a bit, after a bit of time it eased up and I was able to get a closer look at her. However, as I got closer, I heard a faint tapping sound coming from within the glass. Suddenly, she started shaking in her small wooden rocking chair. I could have sworn I saw her lift out of it a bit as well. I was freaked the fuck out and wanted out immediately. We left the museum, and I refused to talk about what I saw until we got back home the following day. I won't be detailing any history about Claire's existence, only because everything about her seems fairly inconsistent. She remains a sort of mystery with memories to this day. Flash forward to the summer of 2023, two weeks prior to this email being written. Another friend that lived in our small town reached out saying he wanted to take a trip to Omaha. I could not say no to seeing Claire again. (laughs) He is just as if not more interested in the paranormal as myself, so we were excited to see what would happen. Upon arrival to the museum, he and I at the same time looked at each other with a, you felt that right too, kind of look. It's almost as if she knew we were coming. After paying, he and I skipped the entire museum to go directly to her room. My friend, in his own excited stupor, ignored the signs just as I had done the time before. The only difference was that nothing happened. Literally nothing. He and I both felt fine in that room. Feeling solace, a feeling of solace was temporary. After about 10 minutes of us trying to interact with the spirit that possessed Claire, my friend's flashlight started bugging out. Once he left the room, it worked fine. Upon re-entry, it malfunctioned again. It would continue to do this for about 15 minutes. During that time, the temperature in the room dropped drastically. That feeling of terror that was all too familiar to me came upon both of us, hitting my friend first. At the time, we both swore we saw a white figure move behind us, but we felt like it could have been easily explained away by a combination of an overactive imagination and possibly the stray beam from another tourist's flashlight entering the room. After a while, we decided to leave satisfied with our experiences. As we were making our way out of the room, I stopped at the doorway with my friend ahead of me. I turned back towards Claire and said, thanks again, Claire. It was good to see you again. Immediately after saying this, I heard what can only be described as a deep guttural sigh coming from her from behind the glass box, almost as if whatever was in there was relieved to see us go away. The night after we arrived home from our trip, we were hanging out with some other friends who then decided to spend the night with us. We drove them quickly to their home to grab stuff for a long night of drinking and scary movies. While my friend and I were waiting in the driveway for our other friends to return, he winced in pain and asked me to look at his back. There, in the middle of his back, was a small scratch surrounded by multiple welts. As of now, neither of us have any reports of any other strange activity from something that may have followed us home. All we know is that if you fuck around with a haunted <laughs> doll, you will for sure find out. Jaden. <laughs> uh, nice ending there, Jaden. I love that. I love like when people say fuck around and find out. I know. It it's a great up. phrase. Fuck around and find out. That one and hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> Kyler's into that one right now. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I've never, I had never heard of uh, the Museum of Shadows or Claire the Haunted Doll. I'm so curious about both places now. I know. I'm hopeful that it sparks you digging a little bit deeper and maybe there's something to it. Yeah, I want to, uh, I'll put a little note here uh, on my hand. I loved the email that Jaden sent in because the subject line was Claire is a fucking bitch. (laughs) And I was like, that's hysterical. What is this about? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so curious, like what it looks like. Did you poke around at all or not Not yet? Um, I can give you some more info afterwards. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't want to give anything away. Okay, okay. Because if you decide to go further with it, oh yeah, you know, like yeah. it would kind of be a spoiler. So. Yeah, I want to see what other encounters around this doll are out there. Claire. Claire. It's hard to find good haunted doll stories. I know that aren't like Harold or Annabelle. Like there's the big mm-hmm. ones, but mm-hmm. then but yeah. then what? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Robert. I know. Yeah. Uh yeah, I love that he went twice. Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of like for confirmation and yeah. two different experiences. Second time wasn't alone. Exactly. And the the thought of a doll being locked up in this case and yeah. hearing the tapping from the yeah. inside. Because I did feel like, well, you could dismiss away the rocking of the chair. Because I guess if, you know, you really wanted to like take the fun out of it. Somebody at the museum, they could have it sort of staged where it's yeah. on like a timer that, you know, some sort of mechanism. But the tapping, mm-hmm. that feels much harder to fake. Yeah. And then that guttural sort of sigh sound. Uh-huh. They were leaving that second mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Good, good creepy story. Yeah. Okay. I am so excited for this next story. I know, I'm excited because I, I, I really like the first one. So, yeah, I'm extra excited for the second one. Well, I feel like it's been a long time since on the fan side, I've had a really good Ouija board story. Okay. So I think, and this story is just, it's also very well told. So okay. So I'm very much into it. It's going to be a, an anonymous tale. And I want you to settle in because it's a good lengthy one. Okay. Hey, Dan and Lindsay. I've always been a huge believer in the supernatural, and I had a handful of small experiences as a kid growing up, but by far the scariest happened when I was in college in 2004. I didn't realize the university I picked had a history with the supernatural until I moved into the dorms and started hearing rumors and lore. There were a lot, but I'll spare you the details and share just the pertinent ones. Right next to campus is a public park. There's an old water tower in that park. It's octagonal at the base, made with limestone and metal at the top where the tank is. It was built in the 1880s and is known as the Witch's Water Tower. Lore has it that there are spirits of witches inside the water tower and that historically, witches have used the water tower as a meeting place to dance in circles around it. It is also said that if you go up there on Halloween and you have your picture taken while standing in front of the wrought iron fence, you will appear behind the fence when the film is developed. Probably because of its close proximity to campus, it has a wrought iron fence around it at the base with sharpened points at the top. I imagine it's to keep drunk college students out. It is, after all, at the very edge of the campus property and right next to the largest of the dorm buildings. It's just up the hill in a collection of trees separating it from campus. One of the first friends I made was Adam, a self-proclaimed witch who brought his Ouija board with him to school. He heard some of the same rumors I did, and like me, he was curious as hell to see if they were true. He asked me if I wanted to come with him and use his Ouija board to find out if there was any activity at any of the haunted locations on campus. We had heard of several, but the one that came up the most was the water tower, which again isn't technically on campus, but it was easy enough to get to. I agreed because what witchy girl could resist, am I right? I used a Ouija board a handful of times before. I'd never owned one, and now I don't think I ever will. 
Adam and I started going up to the water tower with the Ouija board. Several weeks in a row, and I don't remember how many, we would go up there on a day we both had free with his Ouija board and my notebook and pen. I wrote down all of the questions and answers we got while using the Ouija board, which admittedly somewhat killed the pace, but it was good to have for record keeping. It was our little thing that we did. We never, ever told our friends we were going up there to the water tower with the Ouija board, and that worked to our advantage later on. One session in particular stands out. We were walking up to our usual spot, which was next to the water tower, under a large tree where there was a picnic table. It was in the same place as always, right under the lowest branch of the tree closest to the water tower, but Adam seemed confused. Who moved the table? He asked. Well, what do you mean? It's where it always is, I replied. No, I mean, I was up here by myself earlier, and I moved it out from underneath the tree, and now it's back. Huh, well, somebody else probably moved it. It is a public park, after all. He shrugged it off, even though I could tell something about it was bothering him. We each grabbed one one end of the table, moved it, set up the board, and got out the notebook and pen and began. We made contact almost immediately with a spirit claiming to be a teenage girl, age 19, a student at the university. I believe she said her name was Dana. She said she died in 1982. When we asked her where she was, The pointer pointed to the tree trunk near us and slid until the pointer slid off the edge of the board. Thinking this was some sort of weird fluke, we picked up the pointer, set it back down on the middle of the board, and asked again. It repeated, and it slid off the board. We were tried a third time and got the same response, and finally Adam said, Are you in the tree? Yes, came the response. Why? H-A-N-G. We froze. Mm. After a few seconds, Adam managed to ask, Did you hang yourself? N-O. Did someone hang you, I asked. Y-E-S. We took a beat and let this sink in. Then Adam asked, did you move the table? Y-E-S. Y. D-O-W-N. Were you trying to get down? Y-E-S. Both of us quickly pulled our hands off the pointer and let it sit at yes. We looked up. Although we had moved the table, it was still under the lowest branch of the tree, just 10 or 15 feet up. We realized somewhere in the space above our heads was a spirit named Dana dangling from a noose she could never escape. After about a minute, we recovered enough to continue and we apologized for moving the table. I-T-S-O-K. It's okay, she replied. All of this got written down in my notebook and the session did continue for a while, but we didn't find out much else. I'm not sure if it was because of that session or just our success in general, but we decided to hold a seance at midnight on October 31st into November 1st, as that's when the veil between worlds is supposed to be the thinnest. This was about two weeks away at this point, and we hadn't told anyone about our trips to the water tower so far. So we agreed, for the sake of posterity, not to tell anyone the information we accrued until after the seance. Even with my written account, I knew we would be okay because my roommate moved out two weeks into the year and I was alone in my dorm. I didn't have to worry about anyone secretly reading it. We invited some friends and all told we had eight people attending, ourselves included. My friend Stephanie was visiting from home that weekend and she was one of the eight, but she told me right away she didn't want to touch the Ouija board or the pointer. This idea made her, I, this idea made her uneasy. I told her she would be okay and she could be the record keeper. She never saw the notebook until we got to the water tower that night. The whole group met at 11.30 p.m. and we walked as a group up to the water tower. Adam and I were the only members of the group who had ever been up there before. 
I didn't realize it then, but now in retrospect, I did notice that campus was dead fucking quiet that night, which was odd given that it was Halloween night. We walked up the hill, through the trees, and at the water tower, the, it loomed over us in the darkness as we got into the clearing of the trees. The atmosphere felt completely different at night. It was dark, like really dark. There were two lights mounted on the water tower, one in the back. They were bright enough to illuminate the door at the front, but it cast long shadows of the, of the black wrought iron fence surrounding it. There wasn't any other light up there, so it cast sharp shadows on the stones used to construct the base, and it had shadows I wasn't used to seeing. And the air felt wrong, like there was a low-key energy current or something, a feeling I'd never felt before. I was glad we had the forethought to bring two votive candles, and some of us had flashlights to walk up the hill. Once again, the picnic table was moved super close to the trunk. We moved it to comfortably seat everyone, Adam and I exchanging a knowing glance but we moved it without saying a word. The seven of us sat down as Adam used dry leaves on the ground to make a protective circle around us, like every good witch does. He did a protective step, he did a protective spell and brought along a few amulets and whatnot to set out on the table as protection. We took out the Ouija board and I handed Stephanie the notebook and pen and we got started. Adam ended up standing since the seven of us were a tight squeeze on the picnic table. We started at midnight and things seemed relatively calm at first. It was a clear night, only a little bit cold, and we were all alone up there by the water tower. I sat in the middle of the picnic table with my back to the tower like I always did. I had a clear shot down the hill. Not that that meant much because it was dark and the only light came from a few buildings back on campus and that didn't do much. Just a black swath of trees separated us from the few dotted lights of campus. Almost the moment we put our fingers on the pointer and started asking questions, we got a response. We started with the basics. Is anyone here? how many spirits, and so on. We were getting responses, but it somehow felt different, more vague. Normally, the spirits were more forthcoming, and we had a lot more than usual. The atmosphere continued to get colder as the wind began to pick up and the air grew gradually heavier, like it was pressing down, trying to squish us. Suddenly, Stephanie and the girl sitting across from her at my right end of the picnic table closest to the water tower gasped as they jolted. What the hell? Stephanie exclaimed. I was about to ask what happened when I felt it too. It was under the table and it was moving. It was as if the air were super thick and about 10 degrees colder than the rest of the air around us. Everything from the knees down felt like it was submerged in thick, extra cold soup. I had the same reaction of shock and before the people to my left could ask what it was, it hit them too. And then it finally hit Adam who was standing at the opposite end of the picnic table and when it hit him, he collapsed to his knees. His hands gripped the edge of the picnic table and the two people at the end tried to help him up, but I heard him breathlessly gasping, leave me alone, I have to ground the energy. The rest of the group didn't seem to know what this meant, but I did, and while whatever the thick, cold thing was under the table began to slowly dissipate, the air around us grew heavier and colder. We waited for Adam to regain his composure, and as we did, I noticed Derek, the guy sitting to my left, looking straight up over our heads into the tree. His eyes were wide with fear, and he snapped his attention back down to the table, focusing on the Ouija board. What is it? I asked. He shuddered a little and said, it's nothing, it's nothing, don't worry about it. I asked if he saw something in the tree, and he simply replied, I'll tell you later, drop it. Adam finally recovered and was able to stand again. He assured us he was okay and insisted we continue. He was shaky, but we went on. Things got darker after that. The few times I glanced behind me to the water tower, it felt like the shadows from the wrought iron fence grew longer, like they were reaching out for us. I felt an energy at my back, like we were being watched. 
like someone was there, several someones, in a circle surrounding us just outside of the protective circle. The wind had picked up considerably, and it was now officially freezing out. It's November in the Midwest, so not exactly a warm month. It felt like a series of spirits were beginning to run around in circles around the table, almost creating a tornado effect, but I'm not sure the others of the group felt it like I did. Finally, we had our first dropout. One of the girls across from me at the picnic table who had been glancing fearfully over her shoulder down the dark hill the entire time broke down in tears and refused to participate further. We stopped and calmed her down, but she said she didn't like this or the shadows moving in the trees behind her and never wanted to touch the pointer again. She sat quietly while we continued, the answers getting more vague and ominous as the tension in the electricity in the air grew. All of us were visibly uneasy as the wind whipped around violently. Whatever protection that circle of leaves had given us surely wasn't working anymore. All of them were gone. I didn't say anything so as to not further upset anyone, but now we were fully exposed. And that's when we had our second dropout. The girl sitting next to me, who was across from Stephanie, broke down into tears out of nowhere. She kept glancing fearfully over her shoulder at the water tower, crying, What is that girl doing? All of us looked, but none of us saw anything, just the creepy old water tower. Stephanie tried her best to comfort the girl, held her hands, and told her it would be okay. We didn't know who or what she was seeing, but it was clearly upsetting. She refused to continue with the Ouija board, but she was also too scared to walk back to the dorms alone, so she waited. The energy had intensified and the weight of the air was so heavy, we all seemed to be having trouble holding our heads up straight. The answers were getting the answers we were getting when they made sense were cryptic and vague. At one point, the board spelled out D I E. At another one, we asked if there were any spirits left and the pointer moved to no. And we knew if that were true, it wouldn't have moved at all, right? So we asked how many spirits there were and it moved to zero. Then the pointer started moving in circles around the board, just in a circle, never stopping on any number or letter. And when we told it to stop, it moved to no and then resumed spinning. The wind was violent by now. And finally, we asked the spirits what they wanted. L-E-A-V-E, it replied, with a gust of wind so violent we feared tree limbs would start to break. We closed out the session by patting the pointer over to goodbye, blew out the candles and did Lindsay's favorite thing. We got Mm -hmm. the fuck out. We had been up there a little over an hour and we were practically running down the hill. Once we reached the bottom, the wind was gone, just a gentle breeze, and it was easily 15 degrees warmer at the bottom of the hill. We looked up at what little we could see at the top of the hill and the trees were still violently being thrashed around by the wind by the water tower. And that's when Adam noticed that his ring was gone. He wore a special silver ring that was supposed to act as a means of protection, and now it was gone. He figured it must have slipped off his finger when when it shrunk due to the cold. And although we tried to convince him to let it go, he refused. He wanted to go back up there and find it. Derek told him it wasn't smart to go alone and offered to go with him. The rest of us waited by the well-lit parking lot for Adam and Derek to come back. And that was when the girl sitting next to me finally explained that she had seen a woman in white walking in circles around the water tower. She said the woman scared her. None of us saw this, even though half of us were facing the water tower the entire time. We saw Adam and Derek running down the hill like their asses were on fire. Did you find it? Yeah, Adam shouted back. When they reached us, we saw that they were both wide-eyed and pale, terrified. Both of them glanced fearfully behind them, demanding that we needed to leave. And now... I felt It felt like we weren't going to leave there alone. Something was following us down from that hill, and it was following us across campus back to the dorms. It felt creepy, uncomfortable, and a little bit ominous, but I kept myself together because the others were scared enough. I asked what happened up there, and Derek, with tears in his eyes, said, Nothing. You saw something, didn't you? I asked. Don't worry about it. 
Derek told me that what he saw, Derek eventually told me what he saw as we walked back. I looked up and I saw a blue glowing noose hanging from the big branch over the table we were at. It was just hanging there, blowing in the breeze. It felt like an entire bucket of ice had been dumped into my bloodstream. He didn't know about Dana. I asked him if he saw anything else and he goes, no, I mean, what else could be up there? A body, I replied. He stopped dead in his tracks. Oh my God, I didn't even think of that. I told him the story of Dana. Of Dana. The seance was over, so it didn't matter now. He, he, his reaction told me that Adam has kept his word and never told anyone. The next day, half the group avoided Adam and I like the plague, and they cut contact with us altogether shortly after that. And a little while later, all the rest of the group, save for Stephanie, would cut out contact with us as well. I think what happened up there was a little bit too much for them to handle, and we came off looking like occult freaks. <laughs> A year passed, and none of us had been up to the water tower since that night. A new school year, and Adam said he didn't want to do a seance that year. He just wanted to drink. College, what can I say? It worked out, though, because I had to work that night anyways. And I was working a security campus. They had us on special detail that night. A haunted hike. The school hired students to dress up in scary costumes and assigned them locations along the hiking route to stake out and hide, waiting for people to come by on their guided haunted hike tour. The fact that this took place at night was extra spooky. They were allowed to do anything within reason to scare people. For reasons never explained to us, that annual hike had been canceled the year before, but was resuming this year. Funny how that works out, isn't it? Campus security worked in pairs as walking escorts, and my partner and I had to wait at the end of the haunted hike in the parking lot in high-vis shirts, waiting to see if anybody was too scared to walk back to their dorm rooms alone. Apparently, this had been an issue in the past. Halloween day, I was in my dorm room doing some light cleaning when my door opened and I heard with my door opened when I heard my next door neighbor calling me. I went over to see what she wanted and she held in her hand a bunch of loose photos she had just had developed. She handed me a few of them and asked me to look at them. The first two were just fine, just her standing in front of the black wrought iron fence in front of the base of the water tower on a clear blue day. The third one caught me off guard. The picture was filled with a mysterious white smoke obscuring it. You could see her and the fence and the tower, but there was no source of the smoke. My, my professor said, if you take your picture, you'll appear behind the fence when it's developed. This isn't behind the fence, though. Was anyone smoking up there? I asked. It was just me and my friend alone. Neither of us smoke, and there was no fire or any other source of smoke. Well, when was it taken? Today, she said. I got one hour developing. The pictures were taken in rapid succession, but you're into this spooky shit, right? What is this? Spooky shit, I said. Yeah, didn't you and your friends go up there with the Ouija board last year? Ah, so word had gotten out. She wasn't part of that group. I decided to just shrug it off and ask to see the rest of the pictures on the roll and the negatives. She obliged. All of the pictures were normal, not a blemish on them, and the negatives matched. Even the negative for the picture with the smoke showed the smoke on the negative, so I knew this wasn't a problem during developing. My neighbor convinced herself it was nothing paranormal at all, just a fluke, bad film or something, she said. She asked for her pictures back, and I handed them back without telling her what I really thought it was. Halloween night. I'm standing post with my partner. None of the hikers took us up as walking escorts, but once the hikes were all over, the actors started coming out of the woods, laughing and chatting about all the good scares they had gotten in. Except for the last group. They came out looking truly terrified. There were four or five of them, and they were visibly shaken. We asked if they wanted us to take them back to their dorms, and they agreed. Curious as hell, I asked what happened that scared them so bad. We were up by the water tower, by those trees, you know, just hiding behind the trees and the tower to scare people, but there is some freaky ass shit up there, they said. I froze. 
I didn't know the water tower was part of the route. It's not even on campus, but I guess it's close enough. The dull gray metal of the water tank loomed high over the surrounding trees, and it almost seemed to be staring back at me as I thought of the year before. Well, what did you see? I asked, a little nervous. The story came in fragments, but they all agreed. Lights, shadows, so many lights and shadows darting all around between the trees. Dude, there's something up there for real. It stopped when the groups came through, but when we had time in between groups, it would start up again. I tried not to show how nervous this made me. I'd always felt like we let something out with that seance the year before, but I wasn't sure. I heard it's because of those people who held a seance up there last year on Halloween, someone shouted out. I stopped. What was that? I asked. Oh yeah, I heard there's a group of students who goes up there on Halloween with a Ouija board and tries to stummon stuff. So word had seriously gotten out. We did it one time. (laughs) And I didn't know any of these people. We weren't exactly trying to summon anything, but then again, how else does a Ouija board work? I couldn't argue their logic, and I also didn't want to say, oh yeah, I was there, no biggie. I just kept my mouth shut and let them talk it out as we walked back, and I think this helped because they all seemed much calmer once they reached their respective buildings. They felt better, but I didn't. I knew last year we let something out, and now I knew it was still up there. Aside from one trip back to the water tower 15 years later in 2019, I haven't been back since. I went back then because the line, you let him out, you put him back in from Beetlejuice, kept reminding (laughs) me we opened a portal that night and let something out. So I I returned to clean up my mess, only to find out that someone else, I suspect Adam, already had. But I wonder now if there isn't still something watching me from the watchtower. As I sat there to write this, as I sat down to write this, I experienced objects moving on their own sounds of clicks and taps with no known source, phantom sounds of thunder on a clear night, feelings of darkness near me, and chills so intense I often had to stop writing. Seems just telling the story awakens something even though I'm over 50 miles away from the witch's tower. The witch's tower. I know, it's great, huh? Yeah, what a strange thing. Yeah, that was a great story. Yeah, great story. Mm -hmm. I love like how long it's like been and that it still is freaking this person out. Yeah. Like, I love the way things spread across campus. Like, that's mm-hmm. so funny to me. Yep. Just like, one time. We just did this one time. Yep. I love the idea of, uh, I don't I don't know if when I was at Gonzaga, because I went there around the same time that uh, this person went to their college, just based on the 15 years later, 2019. Yeah. Um, I don't remember us having any haunted things on campus like haunted tours i love the idea of a haunted hike i know isn't that genius that's that's a good one like uh, as opposed to like a haunted house haunted prison i mean they're all good Mm -hmm. but just that twist of the haunted hike like out in the woods Mm -hmm. having people hide in the trees and stuff oh that'd be a great like a thrill seeker kind of like little halloween hike I know now, like my uh, adult brain is like, well, they probably don't do that anymore because somebody's going to fall and break an ankle. Somebody's going to get sued, blah, 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 blah. Yep. But yeah, I think it's a a really cool idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I feel like maybe in Cleveland, there was something like that. Oh man, my brain isn't operating fast enough to think about. I feel like there were some sort of like haunted trails or maybe something. So maybe not like a hike, but like a yeah. haunted walk. I, I guess maybe the concern now, now that I'm thinking it out, if you, I mean, okay, if you have a haunted house, I, I think about like Silverwood near here. Yeah. Um, they do like their, what is Scary it called? Wood. Scary Wood. Mm-hmm. And, and like, but like you have to go past a ticket collector to get into Silverwood. So to right. get into Scary Wood, there's like a fence around it. There's security around that. Oh, it's, it's I see where you're going. To, yeah, it's hard to get in. A random haunted house, you know, it's like usually you go into a door where there's, again, there's like a ticket taker. Right. If you're out in the woods along a trail, 
some fucking maniac oh my God. could sneak into the haunted, you know, uh, people, the, the people doing the scares, uh-huh, uh-huh. they could just hide amongst them and do something horrible. Yeah. Well, I guess that's like, we watched some horror movie, I think like last year, maybe. Yes. We, for one of our TLAs, it was a few years ago. I think we, I think we watched it with some fans. I yeah. know which one you're thinking of. Would they go into the amusement park? Uh, no, that's not what I was oh, thinking. Oh, okay. There was like a, a haunted house. It was like, you know, like people who work at a haunted house and you know what I'm talking yeah. about now? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, you know, they were doing their jobs. They were getting the house ready. Right. It was shot in like a sort of like documentary yep. kind of uh, manner. That was and another then, TLA one. Yeah. And then it was, oh yeah. And then it was, uh, you know, they're, they're doing their job. People are coming in, but there's some, there's someone else yeah, or something else in the space that wasn't meant to be there. Yeah, because then we watched another movie that was an outdoor amusement park setting. Same thing. I don't remember. There was a murderer that snuck like a like a serial killer snuck into the 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 haunted area and was just like, you know, killing people. I mean that is like a terrifying thing to just like think in general because a haunted house is inherently scary Mm -hmm. and it has paid people in there. And you know, the thing about like scary wood that makes it less scary, less probable for this to happen is it's like employees have to come through a gate, right. not not just attendees, right? But like yeah. if you're in a, if there's any like sneaky way to get in, that is like some sort of psychopath's dream come true. I know. I, I'm thinking things right now that I don't even want to share. I know me too. Cause because, I'm like, I don't even want to put that into the- yep, Because I don't want to like tell people like, hey, this is how you could sneak some stuff past. Yeah. 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 <sighs> But yeah, no, I I thought this was a great story. And mm-hmm. like, I can totally picture, you know, a young 18, 19 year old kid, like at college, you know, just going up there just for funsies, like yeah. prior to the Halloween thing. Yeah. I thought it was fascinating that they kept record. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's so smart mm-hmm. because they weren't intending to do anything nefarious. They yeah. were just, they're just two people who are into, you know, making contact with the other side, curious about, yeah, Wiccan you know, rituals, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. A cult, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then like, you know, they make that contact with Dana and then other people are seeing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I loved the, the build up to like the big seance, all the details that help you understand that nobody yeah. else knew what was going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, Good one. Yeah. It was really great. I really like that. Do you like my new ring? Uh, I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, you got it from a sponsor, right? Yeah, from Blue Nile. You guys, I'm really into this. We'll talk about it on like an ad, but it's so cool because it's a square ring, but they made the inside round. So it actually- the oh, prob- it's comfortable? Mm-hmm, the problem with square rings is that they generally- This is an ongoing issue, an epidemic of, <laughs> you know, square rings hurting your finger. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a huge thing, but um, this is really comfortable. Oh, it looks like nice it. too. Thank you. Do you want to thank some Annabelles? Sure, I would love to. I'd like to thank the following Annabelles for supporting us on Patreon and just, yeah, so grateful for you to be there. And we hope that others of you will come join our little community there. Uh, Logan Cracksberger. That's a fucking great name. (laughs) And it's spelled like Uh K-R-A-X. It's very cool. Logan Cracksberger. I love you. Dawn Wilson. Sorensen. Katie Smith. Lucas Allen. Wendy Walters. Marco Yolo. <laughs> well done. Zach Frillman, Austin Skinner, and Deanne Salazar. Nice. I got some good ones uh, here too. Some, oh, yeah? uh, this one in particular. Uh, but yes, I'd like to thank the Amanda John, Mrs. Naughty Sheriff, <laughs> or Mrs. Naughty Sharif, uh, Heather Nopic, Jules, John Timmer, Beluga, <laughs> uh, Jared, and Melissa Wentworth. 
Jimmy Pitt, Michaela Snodderly, and then this is my favorite uh, name in a while, Stretchy Long Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible, honestly. Oh, Stretchy Long Nuts. That sounds not comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry about your long, stretchy nuts. Toilets are rough for them. Oi. Oi. <laughs> you gotta Give like, the boys a bath. Or, or you just got to like hold them up. You got to flop them off to the side of the bowl. Ew. Okay. Ew. How is that worse than holding them up? Uh, just flop. You, just gotta, you know? You just got to whip them off to the side of the... Yeah, whip them yeah. off to the side, but flop just feels so <laughs> like... Uh, Pretty sure they'd be flopping. I know, but it like conjures up a very different feeling. Okay. All right. Uh, I have the following spoopy shout outs to Aubrey from Mommy. Happy birthday to my little creeper. Welcome to the du- welcome to the double digits, my Halloween baby. To Alexander Vaught from Alexander Vaught. Happy birthday <laughs> to myself. Uh, oh, this is so sweet. Um, to Jasmine from your mom, Danielle. This is uh, Danielle sending a, a rest in peace to her dog. Uh, I, I truly hope you know how loved you are. You are important to me throughout my entire adulthood. I know for certain I'll never have another friend like you. I hope you are resting easy and playing with all the balloons and bottle caps you can handle. My little jazzle frazzle razzle. Maybe one day I'll see you again and feed and feel your little tongue lick my face. Oh, yeah. Oh, losing pets is the worst. Well, not the worst, but it really sucks. Mm-hmm. To Wayne from Angela. Happy 50th birthday. I love you as much as I did the day we met. To Patrick from your mom, Elizabeth, happy belated birthday. And to Paige from Grace. Paige, Grace has a big question for you. Would you please do her the honor of standing up for her at her wedding and being her maid of honor? Aw. I know, so cute. That is so cute. So, so cute. I love the spoopy shout outs. I know, they're so fun. Mm-hmm. Those little insights into people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. And that is our show. Thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else, such as a spoopy shout out at info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thank you to Tyler C. editing and publishing today's episode. Thank you to Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails to book editor Drew Atana for polishing and preparing listener stories for book number five. And thank you to producer Olivia Lee for finding the first and second stories I told this week and Sarah Finch finding the third. We are on YouTube if you would like to watch the show. Boobtube. On Facebook and Instagram if you want to see the pics that accompany episodes and more at Scared to Death Podcast. We have a private Facebook group, Creeps and Peepers, full of horror lovers. Enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you did have a happy Halloween and hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but have no home here within scared to death. Magic Productions. Do you want to use my crochetla? Yeah. She's, she's so special to me, so I want you to be really gentle with her. Okay. I love her. She's my favorite Layla. Oops. Whoops. <laughs> I got her. She's okay. She's okay. Give her a kiss. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide 
at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. <laughs> 